turn, if you haven't already, to the scripture that Gloria mentioned. I'm not sure if you could hear the reference, but we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be going up to verses 21. Uh, I know that we've been covering this in our small groups. If you are here and you're not in a small group, you can write that down in our friendship registry if you'd like to join one, and we will plug you in to that. Uh, as we're looking at our, our uh, subject for today, I am reminded of a book that was published in 1896, and it was entitled In His Steps by a man named Charles Sheldon. Now, you may not be familiar with the book, but you are familiar with the tagline that came from the book. There was actually a subtitle that was revived and became a movement in the uh, 1990s, and it was known by the acronym WWJD. You guys have heard of that? WWJD, it stands for What Would Jesus Do? Exactly. And uh, Sheldon had written this book entitled In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? And it's a story about a pastor who challenges congregation after a tragedy happens in the service. Uh, actually, let me back up. This pastor was studying one night when there was a knock on the door, and he, he needed study time, he didn't need to be interrupted, and it was a young man. And the young man says that he needs a job, and Sheldon, uh, the pastor, uh, says that he doesn't know of any jobs that are available for uh, him, and he just dismisses him. And I guess this guy had gone, I've not actually read the book, but I'm familiar with a lot of the premise of it, um, he goes to other different Christians and asks for a job, and no one gives him a job. Well, during the worship service, he walks right in during the middle of the service, walks to the front of the service, and says that he, he was desperately in need of a job. He needed help, but no one would give it to him. And then he ends up falling dead right in the middle of it, right in the middle of the service. And it floors the pastor because he realized that this guy needed hope, he needed help, and he just closed him off entirely. And God really was, uh, touched his heart so much that he, he was studying even this passage that we're reading today as he was, uh, that's the passage he actually been studying. And he said, what could we have done differently? In other words, what would have Jesus have done? And he then challenges his church to think about that for the next year. To remind themselves right before they ever made a decision, decision what would Jesus do? Now, we know that that got revived in the 1990s. People had bracelets, there were CDs, there were books. You've probably seen it, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And the premise is, is that each one of us would ask ourselves that question before we do anything. What would Jesus do? Now, today, and this is what I love about the Word of God, is the Word of God is applicable to all of life. It deals with all kinds of situations. It deals with ambition. It deals with success. It deals with the problem of sin. It deals with interpersonal relationships. It deals with how we interact with government. It deals with husband and wife relationships. It deals with children and uh, parent relationships. And it also deals with some of the toughest relationships that we have is us as employees with our employer. One of those very difficult topics. I see many of you nodding your heads because we have to work, and working is, is difficult, especially if you have a boss who is difficult. Um, so the scripture, though, talks to us and says, how do we interact with our earthly employers? How do we interact in this relationship that we have? 
Now, there's a few things that we need to see from the get-go as we jump with, into our passage for today. You're, you would notice, if you look at your text, you see that Peter starts off, and he is talking to them, saying to them, you are strangers in this land, and this is another way by which you are a stranger. You're going to interact with your employer in a different way than unbelievers do. And we want, I want to show you, it's what Peter's saying, is this is how you should interact with your employer if you're a child of God. And it's going to make you look even more strange because it's totally antithetical to our culture. And in our culture today, we are the recipients and beneficiaries of a culture that had a yellow flag with a snake on it that said, don't try it on me. We are good at asserting our rights. We're not very good at submitting. We're not very good when it comes to difficulty and dealing with difficult people of submitting to them because we see that as a sign of weakness. But that's not what Jesus says, and that's not what Jesus was. Jesus showed us the way that we are to live. Now, we do have to understand in what's going on in context. And I want you to look at your Bibles with me uh, and see some of the first thing that he starts off with in verse 18. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, the word there is a very odd word. It's not the normal word that we see for servants. Normally, the word for servants in Greek is called doulos. We translate that with servant and or slave. It's a different word, oiketes, which means uh, it is a, a household servant is what he's talking to, one who works in the house. And he's saying that you should be subject to your masters. And, and, and it's, a, it's an odd phraseology. It's an odd thing for us who live in the 21st century where slavery has been largely eradicated. We don't talk about slavery very often. I mean, we don't have slavery in the United States any longer. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, but sl and slavery in the modern world is largely disappearing. As a matter of fact, the last state to abolish slavery, or last, not state, excuse me, country, was Mauritania which was in, is in northern Africa, and it just abolished slavery as late as 1981. But slavery is still happening in, in Mauritania. Uh, matter of fact, it's, it's the last stronghold of slavery. And, and we have a very hard un time understanding it. I mean, we look at slavery from the lens of the 21st century, but we have to understand what slavery was like in the ancient world. And not only that, we have to ask ourselves the question, why does the Bible talk about slavery at all? What does the Bible even mention that? How come the Bible doesn't just say, get rid, of get rid of slavery and abolish it entirely? I mean, even during the Civil War, there were Christians on both sides of the debate. There were those that said the Bible talks about it, it should be continued on, and they're saying, no, it's an eradication of it. So what do we do? And how do we then take that, because we are not slaves in our modern world, we're employees, there are principles there, but I want to take a moment just to address this topic of slavery. I don't like it when we get to a text and just skip over things. I like us to stop and park and understand why we don't, uh, why the Bible doesn't address slavery as we would, as much as we would like it to. There's a few different reasons why Peter doesn't call for the ab uh, abolishment of slavery, and the, actually the founding fathers had very similar issues when they were debating whether slavery should be abolished even as the Constitution was being written. I don't know if you knew that or not. We think of it being a Civil War issue, but it was actually dealt with by the Founding Fathers, this institution of slavery, that had become so prevalent within the, the, the world. And there are several reasons why they were having a hard time abolishing it um, when they were writing the Constitution. The first reason was simply um, dealing with economics. 
um, because people had purchased slaves. This is in the, not just the ancient world, but in our world today. And for them to abolish it, it meant that all these guys and all the money they'd put into it was lost. So the government, early on, had come up with an idea of actually recompens- or compensating um, slaveholders for so many hundred dollars per slave. There was a huge problem with that, however, because the, the government in the 1790s boasted a whopping budget of $4 million. And with all the slaves in the, the fledgling colonies would have been in the hundreds of millions of dollars. There was no way the government could afford to do it. Secondly, it made up all the workforce. And for slavery to be removed, there would have been no workforce at all whatsoever, and the entire economy would have collapsed. Third, there was the danger of revolt because slaves outnumbered their masters and people were afraid at the time of open revolt. But probably the biggest reason that the, uh, the founding fathers didn't do it is because they were putting together the Constitution and the southern states said that if you abolish it, there will be no union. And it was a, a huge issue that they had to wrestle with. And they hated the institution of slavery. And I think Peter and Paul, when they talk about slavery, they have an equal uh, hate, but they weren't trying to be revolutionaries in that sense, to, to turn over the social structures. Rather, they were calling people in everyday reality and how they were to live within it. And so we can see and extract that principle to our day, though we are not slaves, though that we do have certain rights, there are principles that are applicable to each one of us who are employees. And that's what I hope that we can see together today. I want us to look at uh, verse 21, but before we do that, I want to just have a moment of prayer asking God's blessing on our, our sermon time. Father, we come before you longing to understand how we can apply this truth to our hearts. Lord, we go through uh, difficulties day in and day out. Many of us, in our, we're in jobs that we hate, or we're looking for jobs, and, and we can't find them. But Lord, help us to see, no matter what situation we're in, whether we're employed or underemployed, whether we are striving, whether we are struggling, or whether we're just... Uh, having a very difficult time, I pray that you show us how we are to be employees that follow in the steps of Jesus Christ so that your name might receive glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start off in looking uh, at verse 21. I want to actually go to the end of our passage for today. We see in it, he says, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now, it's interesting there that the word example is the understanding, uh, it's used for uh, students who would to, uh, follow the teacher's handwriting and then copy it completely. And it's saying that he's left you an example. It's a template. Now, Jesus has left us an example on how we are to live. And what we need to do is make sure that we are modeling Christ's example, and we see here that he suffered, he humbled himself. So we need to be modeling Jesus' humility. If we're going to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ, we need to be modeling Christ's humility. Now that's easier, easier said than done. 
How do we model Jesus' humility? Jesus suffered for us, leaving us an example that we are to emulate, that we are to model. And the idea even of in his steps, it's the idea of a steps headed in a certain direction. And, and we can take the picture with the snow outside is of a father walking in his steps and the child trying to step in those steps as he's going and following behind. And we are to follow in the steps of Jesus, and that means modeling his humility. Now, his humility can be seen in uh, two different ways that I have in your notes, but I'm going to add a third one for us today. The first one is we are to be modeling Christ's humility in our attitude. You know, attitude is a lot of times everything. I mean, many of us, we, we know what it's like to have a bad attitude. We, we get up, we don't want to be at work, we don't want to talk to anybody, we don't want to listen to anybody, and it's hard to have a good attitude when we feel that we're, we're being overlooked, when we're being mistreated, when we're, we're being uh, maligned, gossiped about. It's very difficult to have a good attitude, but we are to have the mind of Christ. That's what Philippians 2, verses 5 says. I want to show you that verse, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among you, and this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The Savior takes the form of a servant. He had the right attitude. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, many of us are good at being obedient to a certain point, but death is not one of them. We are, we are good at being, having the right attitude until it comes to the point where they insult us personally. And then we're out of there. But here Jesus is being... He is humbling himself even to the very point of death. And he's doing it to an, a, a master. I mean, in essence, not just a master. He's doing it to the sinful man. I mean, he had an amazing attitude in the midst of this. It's quite phenomenal if you think about it. We're to have that same type of attitude. And not only are we to have that same type of attitude, which is a great deal of our problem, we're to follow through with the right actions the right actions. Now, this is very, very difficult when you think about it, because Jesus is, what did he do? He submitted. He humbled himself. I mean, how many of you, and I'm not going to ask for a raise of hand, because some of you might have your boss here right now, okay? How many of you feel underqualified? Not underqualified, un- overlooked, underappreciated. How many of you feel that you are better qualified than your boss? That you are smarter than your boss. I mean, we, we sometimes think uh, in working with our boss that I'm smarter, I'm better qualified, I have more experience. I mean, we all know that just because a person's a boss doesn't mean that they're qualified to be in that position. Right? We've all worked with people that just don't seem like they're in the right position. That's a nice political way of putting it. And we go and we complain and we get frustrated and, I mean... Imagine submitting yourself to someone who has had less education than you, less experience than you, and looked like a fumbling idiot when they were trying to do what you have already mastered. And I want to realize something. Jesus did that every day. He submitted himself 
to people who did not know what he knew, who did not understand what he understood. He submitted himself to authorities that were abusing the very words that he had written. That's quite phenomenal. It's amazing to think about. And we're to have that same attitude, and we're also to have that same action that we will willingly, an act of the will, submit ourselves in difficult situations. Now, there is a key difference between slavery in the first century and today. You can quit. (laughs) Slaves in the ancient world couldn't do that. Even the word master is the word despotes, which we get our word despot. It's a person that could do anything to a slave. Now, there were rights that the slaves, I mean, not rights, there were laws in somewhat protecting slaves, but a slave, uh, and it was treated different than in our world today, slaves could be very well treated or very poorly treated. Some would become school teachers, lawyers, um, artisans. They, They would be born sometimes into the household and even treated as a child and had great training. Some of them that went into slavery, I mean, people could go into slavery for three reasons. One, they could have been part of a conquered people group. Number two, uh, they could have been um, born into slavery. Or number three, you could, if you had a significant debt, put yourself into slavery for a period of time in order to work out your debt. Those are the three ways that a person could be a slave in the ancient world. Now, There were good slave owners, and there were bad slave owners. Some enjoyed um, amazing blessing, while those who, for those like who worked in the mines, it was not such a wonderful time. And you, in some ways, had no rights. You were at the beck and call of the master. I mean, they could abuse you physically, sexually. That's how it went on in the ancient world. Now, again, it's a totally different scenario today. If, I'm not saying that you as an employee need to su- submit to that. You have the right in this regard to remove yourself from anything that is going to be harmful to you. But Peter is telling people who had, didn't have that opportunity to get out how they were to act in the midst of it. And that's hard to believe. He's not saying revolt. He, now, Paul does say if you have the opportunity to get, obtain your freedom, then do so. But they're trying to find ways for people to follow Christ in the midst of it. And, and Peter, it's even amazing that he's even addressing these people. Because slaves were considered to be less. They didn't even have right, I mean, they, they were considered to be less than people. Matter of fact, they weren't even considered to be able to behave morally. Masters were the ones who were to be able, be, had uh, moral accountability, whereas slaves were considered not to have moral accountability which is quite phenomenal that he's addressing them. So we can see from that that Peter is, is placing them on an equal state in the church. He's not addressing what's going on in greater society, but he's saying in the church, you are equal, and I'm going to talk to you on how you should behave within this system. You're to have the humility and model the humility of Christ, who himself had been a victim, who had suffered injustice, and he understands the injustice that you are suffering better than anybody else. He totally understands it. So we're to model his humility in our attitude, in our action. And I want you to put a letter C. I don't have this on the notes, but in your ambition. To ambition. Jesus' number one ambition was to please God. Period. 
His ambition was to please God. And we have to understand that our number one ambition is to be to please God before man. Paul even talks about this in the book of Colossians chapter 3. In he addressing bond servants, he says, Do your work heartily unto the Lord. Not as men who are just making eye service, as if you're, you're waiting for your boss to come in and then you're busy at work. But you're doing your work under God, understanding that He is the ultimate authority. Make it your ambition to live a life pleasing to Him, and then you'll be pleasing to your employer. And in some ways, it doesn't matter what your employer thinks because you're looking higher than him. You're looking at the, the, the big authority. It's just like when I was a, a basketball player on a basketball team, you'd have uh, parents shout all of this stuff from the stands. I mean, shoot the ball, pass the ball, you're doing this. And, and you learn as a player, you only hear one voice, and that is the voice of the coach. It's the voice of the coach that matters in the game. He's the one that orchestrates. He's the one that you're, you're, you've been studying under. He's the one that knows the game plan. He's the one that knows how you play. He's the one that knows everything about you. Every other noise, you have to drown out. That's what we have to do as employees. We drown out every voice, and we do listen to our employer, but the ultimate voice we listen to in the midst of all that is God's voice and God's voice alone. Because God's voice is going to keep us in tune with everything else. So we have to make sure that we are modeling the humility of Jesus Christ. That we are modeling his attitude, his actions, and even his ambition. Now, we see, even within our text, that he did something pretty amazing. And Peter is addressing that. He's, he's talking about following in his steps, for Christ suffered for us. But I want you to go back and look at verse 18. He says, be subject to be submissive to. And what he's telling us there is that we need to be, if we are going to follow in the steps of Jesus, we need to be submitting to human authority. Submitting to human authority. Now, the scripture talks a great deal about submission because we see submission even within the Godhead. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three together. We see the, the Son submitting to the Father. We see in, in these different submissions happening within society, in greater society. It is God's desire by our submission that we reveal who He is and in one essence portray even the Godhead. It be a reflection of that as we do submit to human authorities. Now, it's interesting, though. He talks about that. What kind of authorities do we submit to? Do we always to submit to those who are just? Well, he says, submit to the good and the gentle. And it means exactly that, good and gentle. We all know what it's like to work for someone, I hope we do, who's a good person to work for. You ever had a good boss? Someone that cared about you, that wanted to know what was going on in your life, that listened to you? That person's easy to sub submit to, isn't it? It's easy to, to submit to someone who cares for you. So he's saying that we should submit to human authority, which means that we submit to the just. The just. That's what the good and the gentle are talking about there. We're to be submissive to those that are just. And that's easy. No problem. But look who else we are to submit to within our text. Check out the verse. In verse... 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, 
There's an attitude there. It actually means reverence. There actually means all fear of. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. We are to be submissive to the unjust, which is pretty amazing. We're to have all respect. Words are actually pontiphobo. We get the word phobia from this. It means in all fear. It's not referring to the fear of your boss, but to the fear of God. We're to have a greater fear of God than we are of man. I know we skipped over this, but I want to show you this quote by Francis Chan, because I think that we have a greater fear of man than we do fear of God. But Francis Chan uh, pastor, used to be pastor, uh, left his church in a pretty amazing way, didn't leave for anything bad, but left because he felt like people were talking more about his name than they were about God's name. And he said, I don't want to be Christian famous. And he's lived a pretty anti, anti-cultural life in, in God, and he did say, uh, for God, and he said this, if we were to meet God in person, I think the first thing he would say is, you don't take me seriously, you have no idea how to fear me. He's saying, and that's what Peter's saying, is you're to have re- respect, to, to, you're to submit uh, to your boss with respect, but the idea there is that you have a greater respect, reverence of, for God. That I'm putting God above my earthly master. And I should have a greater fear of God and, how, and what he cares about my life than anybody else. Now, that mi- does mean that we do submit to the just. Now, I'm reminded of my wife at this moment in time, since it is her birthday. Um, when we were dating, I remember her talking about, her, she was a, in some ways a typical teenager. Um, and as teenagers, for those that have them, or if you remember back that far, did you have a difficult relationship with your parents? Put it this way. Did you ever get in an argument with your parents when you were a teenager? What did you do when you got into an argument and your parent required you to do something? Did you submit or did you fight? Now, I'm reminded, this is what attracted me to my wife, one of the things that really attracted me about her, is that uh, her father uh, really put some tight regulations on her when she was in high school that she felt were unjust. I'm going to say that. Hopefully your dad won't hear this sermon. Um, He felt, she felt were unjust. And she said, I will submit to you. And he said, I'm glad, or she said, I will submit. That's what she said. I will submit. And he said, I'm glad you submitted to me. And she looked at him and she said, I'm not submitting to you. I'm I'm submitting to God in you. (coughs) Meaning that I'm recognizing your position. I don't agree, but God tells me I'm to do this. So I'm going to do it. And that's, that's what's going on here. Is we have to understand that God wants us to submit to him, have a greater fear of him rather than of man. Now, is there a time that we don't submit? Now, like I said before, Peter is speaking to people who didn't have that choice. We have that choice. Now, we don't submit if they're asking us to do something that violates the moral law of God. That's pretty clear. We see that in the book of Acts chapter 5, when the Sanhedrin bring Peter and the apostles to him and command them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And this is what Peter says right here. He says, we must obey God rather than men. He's our highest authority. When man's authority tries to trump God's authority, God's authority wins. So that's, when we, that's when we don't submit. 
But when we don't have that choice, I mean, we must make sure that we honor God above all things, and we don't even submit when they're telling us to do something illegal or evil. But within reason, we are to be submissive. Now, Peter calls us to submit to the just. As I mentioned before, those who treat you fairly, that's easy. But he also calls us to submit to those who are jerks. That's what it says. Matter of fact, he says in there, uh, the idea is, the word in there for the, for the harsh or the unjust is scol- scolios, from which we get our word scoliosis. The idea is crooked, cruel, harsh. And, and the idea is, is that he's a perverse guy or woman. And we're to submit to that, not just to the just, but to the jerks. And that's not easy to do. Like I said, it's easy to do to the just. It's really hard to submit to the jerks. But that's what God is calling us to do. You ever had a boss that was a jerk? Are, are you a boss that's a jerk? I hope not. I hope that you treat your employees fairly and equality. But we, as employees, are to make sure that we are modeling the attitude, the actions, and the ambition of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is not an easy thing to do. We're to be submitting to human authority. But that is not all. What else are we to do? We're to be celebrating God's glory. Now, what do I mean by that? When we submit to God, and in that situation, the way that God has asked us to do, God receives glory because of it. We are to celebrate God receiving glory through our submission. How and why? Now, we celebrate because of three different things. First of all, God will be highly magnified by our submission. Now, what do I mean by that? Magnify has two distinct meanings. And I I want to draw your attention on the screen to a quote by John Piper as he examines and talks about the two differences of the word magnify. He says, magnify has two distinct meanings. He goes on to say, one is worship and one is wickedness. You can magnify like a telescope or a microscope. Both magnify. He's saying that both of those principles are prevalent within a telescope and in a microscope. When you magnify like a microscope, you make, make look something tiny look bigger than it is. A dust mite can become a monster. Pretending to magnify God like that is wickedness. Because it means you have a very small view of God. But when you magnify like a telescope, you make something unimaginably great look like what it really is. With the Hubble Space Telescope, pinpricked galaxies, really small things that seem really far away, are revealed for the billion-star giants that they are. Magnifying God like that is worship. Then he goes on to say, and I want you to pay attention to the underlined word that's underneath it. He says, we waste our lives when we do not pray and think and dream and plan and work toward magnifying God in what? All spheres of our life. In other words, God wants every single part of your life, he wants to be magnified in every part of your life. And that specifically, in our context for today, is in your job. He wants to be magnified in your job. In other words, he wants people to look at you and see him. That's what he wants. 
And he says that God created us for this, this purpose. If you don't pay attention to anything else in this quote, pay attention to this. To live our lives in a way that makes him look more like the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth that he really is. I mean, think about that. God created us for this, to live our lives in a way that makes him look more like the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth that he really is. In the night sky of this world, God appears to most people, if at all, like a pinprick of light in a heaven of darkness. But he created us and called us to make him look like what he really is. Now, here's what I mean by that. When we understand that God is receiving, God is being magnified, people will see us submitting in very harsh and difficult circumstances. I mean, sometimes we don't realize that when we're being humiliated, but other people are watching. You ever been in a job where your boss humiliated you in front of everybody else? I had a job like that. I was doing a catering job. I was a caterer for a period of time. Uh, when we were transitioning, my mother-in-law works in Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, Florida, multimillionaires. And I got to do a job on Christmas Eve at a place overlooking the intercoastal, had, our own, had its own dock, wealthy people, authors were there. I mean, this is big-time mansion. And I, I got called to cater this job. And the woman who was my boss thought she was on the TV show Hell's Kitchen. I don't know how else to do it. And I heard words that I haven't heard in a long time. And she came at me because I made one mistake. In the rest of the night, I was a complete idiot. And she made sure that everyone knew that. And every time I walked in the room, she would barrage me with such a, uh, I mean, it was a verbal barrage of insults of like anything that I had experienced before or since. So it was very hard. It's the type of person you didn't want to submit to, much less be around. You find ways to get away from that person. I'm busy. <laughs> you see him coming, you go in a different direction. Do you have a boss like that? Bob, you can't nod your head. He's sitting right there. Okay, But it's true. I mean, and God is calling us to submit to that. Now, when we do submit to that, people see it. And they want to know why or how we can endure something like that, and that's when we have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. See, we, when we submit in unjust circumstances, people want to know what would possess a person to do that. And that's when we show we love Jesus and Jesus is the reason why. And the name of Jesus is, is magnified. We celebrate because God will be highly magnified. That's pretty amazing to do. When we look at someone's life and we see someone that submissive. I'm reminded of the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was a pastor theologian during World War II in Nazi Germany. Amazing man. Brilliant Brilliant. Uh, matter of fact, he even taught in the United States as World War II was breaking out. But he, he was so convicted, he said, I have to go back because I have to be able to identify with my people as they're going through this. And he became a leader of what is called the Confessing Church because the church capitulated and compromised with the greater culture. So much so that people were bringing their babies during the church service to be baptized in the name of Hitler. It got so awful. And he became a leader of this resistance. He had been a pacifist at the beginning of the war, and then he, he participates in a plot to have Hitler assassinated. Very, but he, he stood for Christ in the midst of all this. It's a fascinating life to read about. And he has ended up put in prison. And three weeks before the Allies were to free this camp, 
he is taken outside, stripped naked, walks to the gallows, and is hanged. He's 38 years old. Left behind a fiancé. And some of the most wonderful books you'll ever read. Letters and Papers from Prison, Christian Ethics, Nacta uh, Folge, which is German for the Cross of Discipleship. Some pretty phenomenal books. But what's so amazing about him is that he was going to the gallows. He had, he had complete peace. Even as he knew he was going to die, he had complete peace. Complete peace. Most people are trying to stop it from happening. They're crying out. He just walked because he knew he was stepping into eternity. And the doctor who witnessed it, he said this. I want to draw your quote to it. In the most, the most uh, almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. See, he understood that God had called him to suffer. That he needed to be submissive to it. And as he was submissive, it made people look and say, what would possess a person to do that? He was submissive and it made... He was submissive to God and it made God look amazing. It was magnifying him, showing him for how great and awesome he is. And when you're with your employer and you are submitting, you are magnifying the name of Almighty God. Don't think you're just doing it for yourself. People are watching, just like that doctor watched Bonhoeffer. And he was amazed. So we see that God will be magnified and man will be mesmerized. Man will be mesmerized. When they see someone that is entirely submissive to God, there's a boldness that comes with it. There's a boldness that comes with it because you realize that you're doing God's will and these guys are just, they're playing bit parts in God's great drama. And God's showing His name through your submission. See, I'm amazed at that. And what happens when people see us stand for God and be bold, even in our submission? I'm reminded of the apostles once again in the book of Acts chapter 4. Peter and John had been arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. And you've got to remember something. Peter, which is the author of our book that we've been studying, Peter was a lot like us. Bold one moment, coward the next. He was a guy that understood what it was like to take a risk for God. He was also a guy to make bold assumptions and predictions about himself and then to mess it up. And remember, we all remember the story that he denied the Lord after he said that he would die before he would deny him or desert him. And that's not the case. So we understand that Peter was even so fearful that after the resurrection, he's with the other apostles hiding in the upper room. They're fearful of what's going to occur. But then something happened. They encountered the risen Lord Jesus. And they were transformed. And then there came a holy boldness. Where they were, in Acts chapter 2, we see Peter proclaiming in front of everybody, including those that he was fearful of, that Jesus is the Christ. And now he is being brought in front of the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. And they're questioning him about Jesus. And this is where this guy starts to preach. I mean, he starts to get in the face of the people. I mean, he doesn't mess around. He, he stands before the Sanhedrin, and he make, he's bold. I mean, this is not your typical church growth maneuver. He says, you crucified him. You're the one responsible for his blood. And you killed him, but God raised him from the dead and made him Christ. And these guys stop. I mean, they're, they're backing up. 
And it says that they, they it, it's fascinating actually in the passage. I want to show you this verse on what, what they noticed in Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they had recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, what happens, man is mesmerized by your submission because there's a boldness in that submission that points people to the risen Jesus. It doesn't mean being a doormat. It means being one who willingly lays themselves down as an act of obedience to Christ. And there's a boldness that comes with it and an opportunity for proclamation. And when people see that, man is mesmerized. They'll notice that you're a Christian. That you follow the name of Jesus. So God will be magnified. Man will be mesmerized. And lastly, you will be recognized. Now what do I mean by that? Let's look at our text. He says, "For this is verse 19, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit, and interestingly enough, the word that's credit, uh, the word for credit there, and some translations have a different word, but it means reputation. Reputation, credit, and that you get a reputation for that. And who, do, who is that reputation from? This is in the sight of God. You will be recognized in the sight of God because you're doing this to an audience of one. You are living your life in front of an audience of one, not what other people are thinking or saying about you, but what God himself says about you. And God is seeing this as a gracious thing. It is a, a grace, a gift, and he's amazed at what you're giving back to him. And he's recognizing that, and he will honor you for that because you will be following him and doing what he has called you. Notice that in verse 21. This is what God has called us to do. He has called us to subject ourselves, which is used as an imperative. He is calling us to this, to suffer like he did. Because it is through our suffering that God is magnified, man is mesmerized, and you are recognized. And it's the way that we become more like Jesus by sharing in his sufferings. That's what Paul was talking about in the book of Philippians. That we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We are going to suffer. The scripture is clear. All who seek to be godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. You will receive persecution, misunderstanding, mistreatment, misalignment, I mean, uh, uh, being maligned. Because we'll become more like Christ as we do so. We will share, excuse me, the same suffering as he did. As Jesus said in John chapter 12, I'd like to draw your attention to the screen. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat dies into the earth, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. See, what does Jesus say so much, so time and time again? Take up your cross. Take up your cross in your workplace. This is how you take up your cross in your workplace. You die to yourself. You die to it. And you live the life of Christ. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
This is dying to self. This is what it means to follow in his steps. This is what it means to be a stranger in a strange land. Because you're going to look like a stranger when you live this kind of life. Draw that next slide up, would you please? John chapter 15. This is the inevitable result. If the world hates you, people are going to hate you. Get over trying to get everyone's approval. We have approval idols in our lives. We want everyone's approval. You need God's approval. That's first and foremost. God is the one before we are to live our life. He is the one to whom we will give an account to. We're not going to give an account to anyone else but to God himself. And we're to live the life of Christ. We're to be strangers in a strange land. We're to follow in his steps. And the more that we follow in his steps, we'll see how strange we really are. But a watching world will take notice. And some, though they'll be mesmerized, will want to follow and come to know Jesus. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world is going to hate you because it will be an affront to their life. It's going to confront them. Your obedience and your submission is going to be a testimony and a wake-up call for your coworkers. And some of them, they will look at you and reject it, and there's others who are going to be drawn to the Savior because of it. So the question that I want us to conclude with is this. Are we following in his steps? Are we following in his steps as a church? Are we following in his steps in our workplaces? Are you following in the steps of Jesus in your workplace? Are you submitting to your boss? Or are you completely complaining all the time? What are you doing? What is God calling you to do? He's calling you to submit to subject yourself even to the good guy, to the just, and the jerks. To submit yourself to human authority. That's what Jesus did. That's what we are to do. And when we do it, we see the name of God magnified. We see man mesmerized. And we see us being recognized in the very sight of God for living and doing that which is pleasing in His sight. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Each of us must ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? It's a hard question. It's become almost cliche in our world. But yet, when we stop and meditate upon the truth of your life, the reality of your humiliation, how you could give it in the means of surrender and subjection, how you could humble yourself the way that you did, by submitting to those who, who were sinful, who were sore, uh, sorely inadequate, Lord, is beyond our ability to understand. Yet you did, and you left an example for us. And for those of us that find ourselves in a situation like this, that we can't get out of it, help us to have the attitude and mind of Christ. Help us not to have temper tantrums to blow up, but help us to be confidently and boldly submissive just as you were so that people might see you in us and your name might receive glory and they too might be saved use us as individuals and as a church for those that are in the workplace and for those that are in the home lord we know that there are principles that your word of your word that speak to each one of us in the situations in which we find ourselves may we do so that your name might receive glory And may you be magnified 
be seen for who you really are in every single sphere of our life, whether that be home or in the workplace. Lord, please bring your name glory and use us, though fragile and broken we are, though prone to sin and failure, though always in desperate need of forgiveness and grace. We pray that you use us and make your name known in us, not only as individuals, but as a church that your name might receive glory. Lord, we pray that your spirit might be convicting the hearts and minds of men and women that have been broken, that have been shipwrecked on the shores of life and sin, that you might restore them and use them in powerful ways. We pray this in the name that is above every name. In Jesus' name, amen.